You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. He pressed his hand to the ceiling looking for a soft spot, some kind of secret compartment. But the room was bare. He raced downstairs and searched through the ransacked kitchen and living area for hints, but all he could find were loose coat hangers and musty throw pillows. He tore open the pillows, little cubes of gray foam bursting out and tumbling all over. He tore off the wallpaper and searched for holes in the crawl space. He ran outside the house, making sure that he wasn't overstepping the property line and angering the path. And then he searched the house's undercarriage, feeling eagerly along the timbers and around the pipes. Still, the clue eluded him. He went back inside and broke things that were already broken. This isn't real, Ben cried. Every bit of this is an insane fiction. And now you're telling me I can't go hold my son? My son? Because he's somehow the only bullshit thing in it? What is this? Is it God doing this, Crab? I didn't even believe in God before. I just figured if God existed, then he was an asshole. Well, this only clinches it. This is cruel and violent. I did nothing to deserve it. I never betrayed a friend, Crab. I never committed a violent crime. I loved my wife and family the way a man is supposed to love his wife and family. I waded through enough shit just to get where I was before I stumbled upon this godforsaken road. And even then, life was still brutal. I had bills and children and a sick mother. I don't know how I've survived it. I don't know how anyone does. It was already a trial by fire. And now I can't even walk across that field and have one moment with my son? How fucking animal God lets that happen? What exactly does he want me to prove? I'll kill him myself, Crab. I will find this God, this producer, and I will drive a knife right through his fucking brain. Huh? <laughs> it's part of I could say you're a brilliant pro stylist. Thank you, sir. Drew McGarry is the author of The Post-Mortal and the memoir Someone Could Get Hurt. His new novel is The Hike. Thank you for joining me, Drew. Glad to be here. This is a fabulous exercise into the fabulous. <laughs> uh, this is a, a wonderful new American fable. And when you set out to write this novel, were you thinking of it in that terms of Washington Irving and the tall tales that, you know, populate old Americana? Yeah, it was more, um, it was actually, when I was a kid, I, I would read a lot of folktale compilations. There was a woman, her name was Ruth Manning Sanders. And she had compilations of old folk tales, really old ones, like from, from Eastern Europe and from Russia and stuff like that. And, um, and they were separated by monsters. So there was a book of demons, there was a book of dragons, a book of kings, a book of giants, a book of ogres. And it, would have, it would have, you know, like a, like a dozen of these, of these old fables. And not recognizable like fairy tales, but had those sort of elements where, you know, you know there were enchanted objects and there were, you know, there were little trickster goblins that would transmogrify into different, like, into objects or into little animals and stuff like that. And there was really no, um, there was no physical limitations to the stories, which I always thought was cool. You know, it's as basic as Jack and the Beanstalk, where you have the beans and a giant beanstalk grows and you go up to a cloud. And that sort of storytelling, I've always liked it because it's sort of fantasy and yet, you know, sort of modern fantasy is a little, a little different. It's, a, it's become a bit more elaborate. And I'm drawn more to that simple sort of old way of doing it. And so this is my attempt to do that, but like with lots of cursing and stuff like that. <laughs> Mission accomplished. I think that uh, 
boy, tell us a little bit more about that book because I've always been a sucker for monsters and any book that's divided up by monsters is a book that I have to have. Well, I don't think they're in print anymore. Like I, I bought a couple off of, before I, before I started this book, um, I bought a couple of them off of like Amazon, but they were used and like the pages were yellowed and the binding had come loose and stuff like that. But when I was a kid, they were in the library mm-hmm. and they were, you know, and they had the, the cheesy, the library, like vinyl covering of the, to protect the jacket and all that stuff. And I used to just write, read them right in the library and then put them back. And for some reason, I'm an odd reader in that um, if I like something, I tear through it. But if I don't, then it takes me like a month to get through it. Mm-hmm. And these, those are the ones where I could sort of tear through them. You know, uh, it strikes me too that when reading them in the library and finding them like that gives them a kind of a, almost a forbidden tome kind of feel. Well, they feel sort of mystical, you right. know. It feels more like the book chooses you than you chose the book, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't something I was looking for when I was a kid. But then I, you know, then I stumbled upon it. I said, this looked interesting, and then you get sucked in. And that's, there's a sort of joy of discovery there that's very cool. Well, I, I think, too, that's somewhat echoed in this novel, too. There, that, that kind of uh, finding the strange amidst the ordinary, and the ordinary amidst the strange is one of the themes of this book. Yeah, and there's always, um, like for me, I said it before, but like for sci-fi and fantasy, I sort of need a tether. Like I need, a lot of fantasy tends to be closed off, and it's its, it's, its own mythology, and you, the reader, have to sort of find your way into it. Whereas I always like it more when there's sort of a lifeline, mm-hmm. some sort of connection maybe to our world or to, you know, or to, you know, recognizable human traits. Like, like Star Wars is really cool because Han Solo's in it and Han Solo's sort of the guy who's like, this is all fairy tale bullshit, you know? And that's, to me, having that sort of uh, objective commenter who shares your voice as, a, as, a, as an observer is cool. I think, too, that one of the real powers of fantasy that you really use well is the idea of externalization, which is to say that um, we have lots of things rolling through our minds that are either difficult to talk about, embarrassing to talk about, or we don't even, aren't even really sure what they are or what they mean. Uh, fantasy, especially the way you use it, allows you the opportunity to externalize, to take these inside conversations and bring them out and turn them into everyday objects and characters and talking machines and talking monsters and critters. And I think you do a great job of that. Well, thank you. Uh, Could you talk about um, creating some of the um, backdrop? Did you know the narrator's story going in before you started the fable? No, because I'm I'm bad. I'm a bad outliner. I don't. (laughs) outline stuff usually because I can't I can't think of the plot points I can't pull them out of the ether I have to start writing it and then that's how I sort of get to figure out sort of my surroundings and figure out the characters and then and then logical sort of next steps come after that Mm -hmm. but I can't do it otherwise and I I wish I could because it would be better than I wouldn't be then I wouldn't get stuck in places and stuff like that but um, no, usually I have to think about it sort of as I go. But then there's stuff that, you know, that I had had in mind that goes in, you know. Like I had thought of stuff, certain like images or certain f- turns of phrase that I knew I wanted in there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
beforehand and, and you know, was finding the opportunities for to present themselves, you know, like with Crab and, you know, with, with Voris and, and, and light up pupils and stuff like that. Those are sort of little tidbits that I had sort of conjured up that I knew I, I wanted to fit in somewhere as I went. This book does start out in the real world. And so we, we have a man, he's going, he's going to a business uh, meeting, he ends up somewhere in the mountains. I think that that kind of launch point, that entry into the other world is really nicely uh, described by you. And your language is so perfect for this book. It seems like it's really, it reads carefree and funny and joyous, but there's lots of hints to me, at least, that you very, very carefully sculpted these sentences to create a feeling of unreality, to suggest, okay, this is more than it appears to be. Is that something that you had to go back and do? I mean, yeah, every time you write a book, you have to go back and sort of shape it and prune it and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of water the paragraphs and make sure <laughs> and make, make sure that it all, all flows correctly and stuff like that. But um, the other thing was that, that the, the first part of the book is all true. Mm -hmm. So I went, I was, I had to go give a speech in the Poconos and I was at, I was at like a country inn and it was secluded in the forest and I was literally the only guest. I was the only guest in the place. Wow. Um, there was one other lady working there. Um, you know, I asked her if there was a place where I could walk and she said no. And I was like, really? We were like, you know, we were an hour outside in New York City. That was kind of weird, you know. And, uh, and then I walked out behind the hotel and there was this path. And I was like, well, she's either an idiot or, or some magical, mystical being put this path here just for me and only I can see it. And then when I started walking on it, um, I was still alone. And there was, you know, there were no bikers or no runners. There was no, there was nothing. And that, that was sort of weird to me. And that sort of eerie unsettledness, you know, made me start thinking about stuff. And then that's how the book came to be. So a lot of the mood that starts off in the beginning is from the sort of uh, increasing anxiety that I had. It's like if you're in the ocean and you're chilling out in the ocean, it seems like it's cool and fun. But then all of a sudden it dawns on you, hey, there might be a shark. <laughs> and then you just sort of start freaking out. Like it has that sort of vibe to it. Well, I think too that you do a great job of picking up on all the markers of the, you know, American fable. Uh, for example, you know, there's, there's this sign that he says, no trespassing. <laughs> we know that that, on one hand, that's a simple sign outside of a house and maybe it means that you know, you, somebody lives out there. But I think you do a good job of immediately, once we encounter these things, we know that there's a dual meaning there. And that's a, a tricky bit to do. I think it's, it has a lot to do with your grammar, actually. Oh, yes, I've always been strong in the grammar department. <laughs> but, uh, well, so did you go back and revise those parts? Or, I mean, I'm just... Well, yeah, I mean, everything gets... Everything gets revised and revisited and reread a thousand times. You know, by the time you've gone through, by the time I've gone through editing and then more editing and then copy editing and then proofing, yeah, you've read the book a hundred times and you're sick to death of it. <laughs> but yeah, all that stuff, everything has to be, you know, I've, I mean, I've, I've had moments where things, like, I've, I've looked and, like, the word wasn't right, you know? And I'm like, how can I have used that word? And then I have to switch it out. Or, you know, there's repetition. Like, I, you know, I could tell I used the word just like 5,000 times through the text and I would strike that out. So anything you can do to clean it up 
as you go so that it reads very fast. Like I, I personally am not wild about dense text. Mm -hmm. Like if, if I turn a page and the entire paragraph occupies a page, I like groan, you know, <laughs> I don't want that. Like I want, I want some measure of faith that the, that the writer gives a crap about me and my reading experience. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm always cognizant of the fact that I want to read quickly and I want people to be entertained by it. And, you know, the story should carry you. You shouldn't have to, like, it, it shouldn't feel like fits and starts when you're reading something. Did you design this world once you got into it? Did you kind of sit back and think, okay, now I have this kind of uh, other world journey? Um, did you design the other world or did you just kind of say, oh, it sounds like fun? Well, there's a little bit of that, but then it's like the, the thought comes to you. And it's like, that's interesting. Okay, but then you have to, what does it look like? What's around him? You know, what's, and then what, what time of day is it? Does, what, does he still have all these things on him? Um, okay, well, how does, does, is he taking those with him? Like, it, there, once you have the idea, then it, have to, it has to work logistically, mm -hmm. right? There has, to, it, there has to be continuity between one scene and the next. And yeah, there was a lot of stuff where, um, you know, it's like, yeah, that's cool. Like, I like hovercrafts. I think hovercrafts are way cool. There's a hovercraft in the book. It makes perfect sense. But then, but then it's a matter of, okay, there's this cool thing, but it can't just be there because I think it's cool. It has to have some sort of function within the story. And, it, and once, you get, once you get deeper into the story, you know, the things that came before have to serve what comes next and vice versa. So, yeah, I, there, there's a point where, and have with Postmortal too, where... Um, I just I have an idea of it in my head and I get sort of lost in my own headspace. Mm -hmm. And it's actually nice. It's like pleasant. Like when I think about postmortal now, like I just I can sort of go back and feel that world in my brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's sort of cool because I know it's not real. So even though it's got scary stuff in it, I, I you know there's a comfort in just sort of like being in that one little space and then coming back out. But it's it's very um, ethereal. It's not it's not definite. It's like a dream, you know. Right. Where you have a sort of a vague abstraction of, of what it's like, and it's almost like a feeling more than defined walls and and landscapes and stuff like that. Well, I think that that's what makes this so powerful too, is that we detect that this isn't just yet another like um, you described. A, a lot of fantasy is a third world fantasy where it's some the writer has gone off and created their own whole world. Yeah, and, and it's I got very like, insular. And, and I got to look at a map and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I know. If I see a map, I start, right. to, I start to worry. Yeah. <laughs> I start to worry. Right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. do I have to study this map? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't want to study a map. No, no. Uh, but I think, too, that um, for me, the way that you do a good job of, like, checking off, I, th I think, so many of the aspects of, you know, American mythos, like the way time works, Whenever you go into an other world journey, there's the way time goes in at one rate in the real world, and it ha happens at a different rate in the other world. Right. And I think that you do a good job of playing with that in this book. It's kind of like you, you, you have fun. So talk about pacing that and putting that into the plot. Well, because, there, I mean... The whole point is if he's in a different sort of universe, well, it's not going to play by the rules of here. And, you know, if you've ever experienced, you know, waiting in a waiting room or, 
you know, or, or, or taken, you know, or smoked weed or like, or had a, or had a dream that seemed to go on forever or, or had, you know, conversely had a dream that seemed to last five seconds and you woke up and it was eight hours later and you had slept through the night. I mean, it's, it's almost eerie to think about how, okay, on earth there are sort of definite things we take for granted. You know, the day's 24 hours long, the sun comes up, the sun comes down, gravity keeps you, you know, anchored to the floor. And the rest of the universe has none of those rules at all. Like the second you leave Earth's orbit, it's all gone. And, and that's real. That's, that's an actual, you know, that's an actual, you know, deconstruction of the time and space that you are accustomed to here on Earth. And so, you know, if I'm putting the character in a different universe, you know, all that stuff has to, has to be thrown away. And there has to be the feeling of, unsettledness that you get as a human being being out of that like i've read about people going to space and astronauts going to space and you know and they see the sunrise and sunset every five seconds and it screws you up like it's it screws with your brain and your body i would imagine so i had never thought about that but yeah of course. yeah you're not there's there there are no days mm -hmm. you know sure you're out in the ether depending upon this and your your body the human body was engineered and evolved you know, to be on that schedule and have that routine. And once that's gone, there's part of you that is, you know, sort of unnerved and stays that way. So that had to happen with the character, and that has to happen a little bit vicariously with the reader when they're reading it. Right. It's a, a feeling of being unmoored. Yes, that's right. Loosed from the tether of reality. Right. And that's a kind of an unsettling and scary thought, I think. And, yeah. And you do a good job in this book, I think, of making us afraid but also enjoying that kind of fear there's a, a dual edge of that kind of thing yeah it's a sort of thing where it's like you know i like imagining crazy fantastical stuff but i wouldn't actually want to live through it right? <laughs> yes uh, particularly some of that you have um one of the things i like about your character is that he asks a lot of questions. He asks all the questions, almost all the questions that I would ask right. in terms of being in there. And I think that's really important. And it's highly underdone in the novel. It makes this novel much more enjoyable than many another sci science fiction, supernatural novels where they go, oh my God, what is that thing that drinks blood? I have never heard of such a thing before. Right. Because I live in a world where nobody ever read Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I mean, I remember I watched Benjamin Button once, and, uh, you know, he ages in reverse, mm -hmm. and no one in the movie was like, holy crap, that guy ages in reverse, why does he do that? It's just like, he's like, well, I was born old, and they're like, oh, okay, and I'm like, what? No. <laughs> Ask why, you know? Like, there, there should be... Like I said, it's like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. One of the reasons that's a good book is because the main character is like, what the hell is going on? Which is what you would do if you were in that world. Right, and he gets a few answers, as do you. you your right. character gets answers, too. What's nice is that your character's answers, by virtue of the world he's in, don't often make a lot of sense to him, though they apparently make sense to them critters and beings and whatever they are right. that are giving him said answer. Uh I like the idea of this, you know, um, what I would call the mind wipe of the pixies. Whenever you go into this kind of other world, one of the things that will happen is that they will wipe your mind, they will change <coughs> your life, you'll be young again, you'll be old again. And this happens a lot in this book. I think in the, yeah. it, uh, it's 
this book has a, a bit of Slaughterhouse-Five in that the character, in some sense, is, you know, he's unstuck in his own life he, as he, once he gets into this other world. Yeah, and, you know, I, if you're going to have, like, a... You know, if you're going to have, like, a dream sequence or a flashback and stuff like that, it's always better um, when it feels like it's actually happening. You know, <laughs> when, you know, when Harry Potter dies into the pensieve and goes into, you know, me- memories of other human beings... It's not a dream sequence. He is there, you know, and it feels more tangible that way. And it doesn't just feel like a diversion. Like, it feels like there's real purpose as to why he's he's in this sort of sequence. And that helps tie the story together, and it doesn't feel too tangential or anything like that. I think, too, that for all the humor in this book and the jokes and the monsters and the weirdness, you do a good job of at underpinning it with a kind of poignant love of family and a poignant love of reality that where things aren't unstuck. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, anyone's had a, a situation where they're in some sort of weird situation and all they want is to get to, like, if you're too drunk and all you want is to get sober and, and have a cup of coffee or something like that. Like, it, it happens. Like, a lot of times there's just a craving for normalcy mm-hmm. that I have in my own life, too, you know? Sure, some, you, you eat the brownie and you don't realize, oh my God, yeah. that yeah. brownie, that's really not, ooh, yeah. I want to I get back to like watching TV and yep. drinking coffee. <laughs> yeah, I just want to be normal again. <laughs> um, I think that the, uh, another aspect of these situations is food. Food is really important yeah. on, in other world journeys. Generally, never eat it. <laughs> right. And so, uh, but you have a p- play a, a lot with that because he's making food for other people. And so, talk about um, you kind of upend some of those tropes. Did you go intentionally try to upend the, the food tropes? Or? No, I just I have a thing where, regardless of what book I'm reading, if there's a list of food, it makes me really hungry. <laughs> and for some reason, I really like it, even if it's like really basic, where it's like bread and wine or something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, bread and wine sounds really good. I don't know why. I don't know why seeing it in print. Uh, is so evocative for me, but I knew that you know. Uh, you had invested in potato rolls. <laughs> yeah, I, or I knew I just knew that I wanted there to be eating in it, and have some of the eating sequences be, be good instead of bad. You know, have mm-hmm. those be sort of the moments of, of respite. But it's always great. Like in in fairy tales, we're like, well, there was a, a piping hot stew and you know good bread and you know, jars of apples and stuff like that. Like, all that stuff, is, I think, has appetite appeal, and it's fun to put in. Mm-hmm. It's a cheap, easy way of sort of getting into your, the reader's senses. I had never thought about that. Now, uh, also, too, and that's very helpful when, you, <coughs> when you're working in a world that's completely fantastic and where right. anything can happen at any moment, and you make that quite clear with this book, um, that to ground the reader back down into reality. Yeah, yeah, I think you need that. Like I said, there's a tether. If you, you know, if there are sort of moments that, that I can identify within that world, then that helps me live in it more. And of course, we also have, a, you know, a garden, <laughs> any kind of, it, where there's some really remarkable kind of little details. He has to do some weeding. Yeah, and I which I that, hate personally. <laughs> oh boy, I hate weeding too, yeah. I can tell you. I have, that's, I will instantly hire somebody to weed so long as I don't have to. Uh, But I love the kind of details. You lend a lot, er, almost everything in this book has a kind of a, like an element of menace and creepiness to it. Right. 
Yeah, because you want everything to be a little unnatural, you know? Mm-hmm. The, the sign that he's, that you know, that things are not, things seem a little bit normal, but there's enough, there's enough of a twist where it's it's very eerie and, and unsettling and then going through. So, you know, it's not only that he has to do gardening, which sucks, I hate gardening. <laughs> but then, like, you know, the, if the weeds are extra long and sort of creepy and stuff like that, then it only adds to, to the effect of the misery. And it, it does two things at once, too. It creates a kind of uh, a dissonance because everybody's had to reach into the ground and weed. Yeah. But not everybody <laughs> gets to, has to pull out something that seems like it might be part of, uh, a, you know, Cthulhu's whiskers. Or right, something. yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, riddles, puzzles, uh, word games, poems, critical in all of these kind of other world tales critical in here too and you give us a, a variety of spins Did, uh, and so talk about you how you choose what you chose and how you would like were inclined to use them well i used to play lots of 8-bit video games like king's quest and stuff when i was a kid and they were you know they were these little games where you would point and click so you would go into you know you'd you'd be a little dude walking around a meadow and there would be a rock and you would and there was a hole in the rock and you'd say you type in look in the hole and then there was like a dagger inside and then you would have to use it you knew you knew you had to have if you had an item you would have to use it somewhere else like you would have to use it to to kill the the evil crow that had the golden egg that you give to the king and stuff like that and so it was a bit nonsensical and a bit sort of clumsy but i always was endeared by that and that's where a lot of the stuff um in the book comes from to have that sort of feel that there okay i have an item this item has a purpose to it i know i have to use it but i don't quite know how and i have to sort of stagger along and figure out the time and the place to use it and then and then have it have it work so there's a bit of gameplay in there mm. um and i you know and i'm not above like i like pop fiction so like i you know you read the da vinci code and there are little puzzles in it and they're stupid puzzles. Like it's like you oh you turned it upside down on the page, and there's the there's the code breaker to get into Da Vinci's vault or whatever you know. Um, there's it's fun to have those little sort of Scooby Doo moments, you know, where you know if the if the reader feels like there's a puzzle they can solve, it's fun to have them go along with it too. And I was happy to see that my Mennonite ancestors, yeah. <laughs> who were owned the clapboard chalk. Chur- church somewhere in the middle of Kansas. I once went to that clapboard church wow. in the middle of a plane. It was really ominous. I felt like I was just waiting for the tornado. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Oz. Uh, so it was nice to see the nod to the Mennonites. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that there have been a lot of kind of really interesting otherworldly exemplars. Uh, for me, at least, I remember... Uh, being captivated for a year or so by uh, Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan, mm-hmm. um, and the the most uh, latest one I liked was a guy named Patrick Harper wrote a book called A Field Guide to the Other World. Cool. And uh, so I'd like, were there any other world guides that you had used or had inspired you? No, I mean just sort of echoes of of classic stuff that I had always liked. You know, like there's Christmas Carol, there's um, there's Wizard of Oz. There's It's a Wonderful Life. Um, you know, there's there's Goldilocks. I mean, any you know, I've I have found now that you know I like those sort of classic bedrock stories. I mean, a guy getting lost and having to get home is a very 
mm-hmm. is the the oldest story on earth, like literally the oldest story on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's cool to have that and have that sort of sturdy bedrock and then put your own sort of spin on it. Mm-hmm. And that's that was my goal with this one. I absolutely loved Crab. Oh, thank you. Crab is a magnificent creation. I don't think anybody who reads this book will forget him. Uh, you clearly had a lot of fun with Crab, too. Uh, and that was an interesting choice. What brought you to the crustacean world? Uh, well, I've lived in Maryland for 10 years, so i got crabs all over the place. Mm. And um, and the other thing was it made I – knew, I knew it was going to have a, a character that was, that was a, a creature – and it was going to have, like, a, a smart mouth on him. And it, so it just made sense for that animal to be a crab because it's just the perfect match of animal. I mean, a cra- you know, if you have a talking crab, he's not going to be sunny. Like, he's <laughs> going to be. He's going to be exactly what, what, he, what he ought to be. And it just made, it made perfect sense in that respect. And, um, and that's, that, that was part of the reason why. So the, it was very simple in that the, you know, the, type of, the choice of animal leads the, the character. Mm-hmm. I... I was, he. I thought he was a good um, alternate to the to the coyote. I mean, because he kind of fulfills that role right. in a sense. But it's not a coyote, and I really like that. Uh, you also create your own monsters in this book. Yes, I love these monsters. I, I, so talk about uh, creating them, pacing them, and rolling them out from from. Rottweiler man to some of these other creatures that are just really, uh, I think, arcane and kind of creepy. Well, some of them are, um, you know, some of them are based on just like sort of thoughts or ideas I had, and mm-hmm. then then you could sort, I could sort of shape it into a monster. Like one time, I was in, I was in my bathroom at night, and um, there was a light coming from outside <laughs> or something, and it bounced through the window and it went right into my pupils. So when I looked in the mirror, my pupils were glowing. Oh, really? And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And I used that mm. for like a monster. Mm-hmm. And then I worked um, I worked at a website where, uh, like as a joke, we used to take like pictures of football players and we would take their mouths and put their eyes and put them where their eyes were. So they would have mouth eyes. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone was like, oh, God, that's a nightmare. That's terrifying to look at, Drew. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> and... And so then there's a monster, you know, and that sort of inspired another monster. So whatever bits and pieces I could get uh, to put them together and to have monsters that seem sort of unique and memorable and terrifying in their own way, it doesn't have to be like a specific power, you know. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of a look and a feel to them that made them, that would make them memorable and distinct. And then, and then pacing them out, obviously, you know, you, you want the ones that have a character mm-hmm. to have more... Wait. If it's sort of a brainless thing, then it can be a brief encounter. But if it's something with a bit more uh, authority to it, then then you want that to be a larger part of the story and have a real, you know, have a real relationship between Ben and and the, and the monster that goes beyond just I have to kill this thing to get past where I'm going. Well, I'm a big fan of monsters that have characters. I think that's something that's uh, the great disservice of Jaws was that it made people think that all monsters have to be essentially jaws. Uh, right. Teeth associated with no... Just a killing machine. Yeah, killing machines. And I'm not so... Ex- I mean, the killing machine, just got to get a bigger gun eventually. Right. <laughs> well, and the other thing is about I like villains that are... Um, that have some measure of etiquette to them. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I think... 
you know, villains are a big thing now. I say Suicide Squad and stuff like that. But usually it's like, oh, you know, they're crazy or they're they're sort of anti-heroes and stuff like that. Whereas I, I miss sort of like the Vizzini types, the ones that were, they were going to kill you, but they, 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 had a, they had a certain debonair quality to them that I always thought was kind of interesting. Um, it's interesting, and I was happy to see that this is a fantasy other world where your cell phone might still work. Right. <laughs> I, I think that including the cell phone is a kind of a gutsy thing in a fantasy. Well, yeah, because, I mean, so much of my angst as a, you know, 21st century dad is, you know, running out of juice, you know, not, not getting a signal. So all that has to be in there, you know, because the first thing you would do if you were lost in some weird world is check your phone and try to try to get some reception and, and get, get a hold of people. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's one of the things that I think that you do well is to... When he's in the other world, he will occasionally describe our world in a manner that makes it seem just about as scary and unreal <laughs> as the, the other world. And I'm thinking particularly uh, of taking his son to the hospital. That scene ha was really just extremely terrifying. And I'm wondering if that's something similar happened to you. Yeah, it happened to my son. Mm. Yeah, he had to go get a CAT scan and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Because yeah, I thought there might be water in his brain and stuff like that. And then uh, and then it was clean. But, you know, in the, uh, it's, you know, you, you go, you take a kid to a children's hospital and they're, they're very nice, but it's a hospital. There's a certain amount of inhumanity that the workers have to have so they can go about and do their jobs. They're not going to collapse in a heap every time they see a sick kid because they can't can't do their jobs that way well of course as a parent you want them to you mm -hmm. know you want your kid to be special and and so you're sitting you know and so when they they do a cat scan on your kid and they say it's gonna be two weeks well then you're sitting there for two weeks like okay well are they gonna split his head open you know and it's a terrible horrifying moment and then they call you like it's nothing and it's like oh no he's fine <laughs> and you're glad but it's like wow it was a lot it was a lot of angst for nothing yeah it's it's i think that one might suspect that those kind of moments and those kind of experiences would feed into uh, an emotional reaction that might um, best be expressed as an experience of the fantastic, in, as in this book. And I think that's what this book does so well. And I think you do a good job of, when we, when we look at, um, books about, you know, the fantastic. There are some kind of obvious, you know, analogies, you know, of vampires. We've all met human vampires who, you know, will suck the life out of you more effectively than Vlad sure. Tepes ever could, and they could just do it standing, sitting across from you at a desk. Sure. Um, but I think the real skill in this book is to create images that don't necessarily have an exact analog but sit between places that we intuit there's you know maybe a vampire we're having a vampiristic experience over here and we're you know terrified for our kids over here and you will create an image that doesn't refer to either but just makes us nervous right <laughs> i think that that's part of, you know stuff that is just ambiguous enough that we can fill it in ourselves yeah no i mean that's sort of 
you know, I'm I'm always of the the mind that like if I'm watching a scary movie, well, the jump scares are sort of cheap, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know, like the there's the subtler sort of thing where it's more disturbing, like you know Blair Witch, you see the guy get knocked out at the end, but you don't see what did it or how, and that's left to you to figure out. Mm-hmm. And that that f's me up more than than just a standard. Oh, I looked in the mirror and the killer's right behind me and all that stuff. Right. Um, you also have wonderful other world dialogue. It's really snappy, back and forth. And I think that creating those kind of dialogues, those are a really important part of other world journeys because we always, um, the inhabitants of the other world are, are very garrulous. They really want, sometimes it just seems like they want to talk us to death. Yeah, yeah, and that's, what, that's what's fun. I think it's, it's better when, like I said, you know, if the, if the characters have some, some, some me- measure of etiquette to them, you know, that's sort of just like an old, you know, sort of an old world type hospitality to them where mm-hmm. even, even, even when, when they want to kill you, there's a certain formality to it. Um, <laughs> and then dialogue wise, yeah, I, when I, I, I wrote one novel that didn't have a ton of dialogue in it mm-hmm. and, um, and I enjoyed writing dialogue so much. I said, why am I doing this to myself? Like I should write something that has way more dialogue in it. And so that was part of it. Like I wanted to have people that, that liked talking. Mm-hmm. And that and that would make it more fun for the reader too. But there's a, a little bit of a little bit of his girl Friday, a little bit of back and forth. Right, and, and that uh, creates the space on the page is as important as you say. When you look at a page of dialogue, and say, "Oh, I can read that." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, no, it's, it's true. <laughs> um, when you go to the other world, chances are you're going to have to engage in some physical labor, and you might find yourself capable of things you never thought you were capable of. And I like that kind of other world analogy, once again, that takes you, makes you think, well, <clears throat> and it's something that sits in the back of your brain without you really realizing it, too. Uh, I mean, I, it was only now asking you this question that I sus, oh, yeah, yeah, he's saying maybe, maybe he's saying that we are capable of things in our real lives that we don't suspect. Well, no, I mean, my goal is always just to tell the story and then mm-hmm. you take away what you want. Like, mm-hmm. I, I never try and bury a message inside it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I've had those moments where, you know, you got to push yourself and, you know, past the point of physical exertion, you know, where you're like, oh, I, I can't go another step further. But then you do. And the step really sucks, but you do it. Um, so yeah, to put to put a character through those sorts of paces, reasonably. I mean, it, it does it, at times probably strains the bounds of credulity. But I think everyone has had had that moment where they have to push through, even though they desperately don't want to. And um, and obviously, you it, there's always that. Oh, I'm glad I did that. You know, like in hindsight. But at the time, it's always brutal to go through. Uh, you play with history as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Talk about bringing in bits of history for fun and uh, plot development. Well, there's like there's historical characters and stuff like that, and and because it's it's a world where, you know, time doesn't really mean anything. You can mm-hmm. actually you can take two segments of time and blend them together if you want. Um, so there's par- there's some of that in there, um, because I was also like I I'm, I tend to be a big nonfiction reader, and I like. Um, Lots of seafaring stuff, particularly mm-hmm. old like stuff, like any, like you know Lawrence Burgreen, you know, writing about Magellan and stuff like that. And I liked those old, old sort of elements, like old explorer type stuff, because if you have 
if you have a book where there's this strange dimension and stuff like that, and you have one character who's terrified by everything he discovers, it makes sense to have another character who is actively trying to discover it and is enthralled by the idea. And that sort of contrast was a lot of fun. So that there's a, a friendship between characters who, who have different approaches to the world that they've been plunged into. And I think, too, that you do a good job of pacing the population of the book in that it's an underworld journey. So essentially the guy might be alone and not have yeah. anybody to talk to. Yeah. You don't want that. But you, you do want to have some people. So I think that by putting in characters and mixing up your monsters and making some of your monsters a bit garrulous and giving them some character, you do a good job of turning what might otherwise be, you know, a little bit of a slog. Into yeah, something. it would be too miserable. Right, right. It would be unhappy. And the other thing is that I just, I think, you know, I, I always need more work on character development. Mm -hmm. So it, it wouldn't behoove me to try and do a book that has like a sprawling cast of like 60 characters. It just wouldn't. <laughs> and it would, and it's hard for the reader to focus too. So if it's, right. you know, if it's one guy and he meets, you know, one character at a time that has his sort of dalliance with them, I just think, I think there's a, there's a, it has more, a lot more resonance than if I have to keep track, you know? I mean, how many times have you read a book where, you know, someone will be mentioned, they're mentioned 30 pages later, but you're the reader and you don't, rem you can't remember who that person was, Right. you know? Like, it's a lot easier for the writer to keep track of the characters than the reader. Mm -hmm. And so if I keep that sort of minimized and get rid of that confusion, you know, and, you know, if one of the characters is a talking crab, well, you've got to remember that the crab is the crab. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hard there's, to forget the crab. A, there's a certain ease to that. And mm -hmm. there's and you know, and that's how old fairy tales worked too, you mm -hmm. know. Old fairy tales it was there was a king, a prince, a daughter, a monster. Kind of right. it, you know, maybe mm -hmm. like an old lady somewhere. Well, too, uh fairy tales had an interesting you know, they were designed to do a particular thing. I mean, t fairy tales were warning stories. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> they so I uh, I'm curious uh, uh, what were what were you thinking about warning about no. as you uh, took us out on the hike? No, I you know I don't know I I don't know if there was an expressed warning. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's you know you know don't hike alone probably. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful of what business appointments you make. Yes, that's right. Make, uh, um, there are interesting and I think poignant memories in the book. Uh, that's, an, that's a nice uh, touch because it takes us back from some of the, both the flip aspects and the snarky aspects back to a character that we really like and it's important that we like this character. Yeah, you gotta like him and you have to be able to relate to him. And I think, you know, I think a lot of good authors, you know, you'll, you'll notice that they you know, they, you start off with the character, and the character's in action for a lot of it. But then they know that there's a point where you have to pause for a moment just to give the reader an idea of, of where this person came from and what they've been through. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't take too long on it, and it has to always serve the story. But there's always those, those little moments of rest where you discover something new about them that you hadn't discovered before and that that always helps deepen the story as you go along and care about the character more as he gets more and more mired in the situation there's a great line in here where 
Uh, he's been, ben is being told, you have an appetite for grief like a cow's rumen, Benjamin. You have chambers deep inside you for all that grief and rage, don't you? And he says, I do. Tell me, what would you do with all that space if it were empty? Aren't you tired of putting everything in there and leaving it? I think that's a really powerful uh, piece of writing. And it's nice because, like everything else in this book, it's succinct, it's funny, but it's also, it's one of those things, it's funny because it's true, it's also sad because it's true. Yeah, because if, there's a point where if you're an angry person or something like that, it's, it becomes habit-forming, you know? It's what you know, it's what you're used to. Right. And there's a certain comfort with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I've had that problem, you know, where I'm like, oh, I'd like to solve this problem, but then what happens after that, mm. you know? Is that, is that going to be worse than this sort of devil that I already know? Mm. Um, and so that's, there's some of that in there. Although he, his backstory is a lot different from mine. I, I, you know, I have a Minnesota and Maryland connection and stuff like that, but, like, I don't have, there's, there's a lot of issues that Ben has that I don't. And I think that that uh, keeping yourself distant from your narrator, was that hard? Did you have to? Uh, the narrator or the main character? The main character, that is. Uh, no, because, like, there's enough of me in there where I, I know certain feelings and sort of phobias that he has, particularly the mm-hmm. parent stuff, because I'm a parent. That's very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's fun to twist it, you know? It's fun to give him some part of his backstory that I don't have. Right. You know, like I was not, I played football, but I was terrible at it. So I made him a little bit better. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You do a good job of describing depression in, but using the, you know, elements of the fantastic. And I think that that's, again, one of the, that's what this whole genre is all about, is to use all these elements of the fantastic to kind of hold them up and say, See, there's these silly monsters and stuff, but you know, maybe you better look twice at that silly monster because might, you might remotely resemble that silly monster. Yeah, sure. I think a lot of people treat fantasy as allegory, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if it's monsters or it's demons, well, okay, those are like the demons and the monsters inside my head and all that stuff. Um, but I did make sure to keep it open-ended in a way that, you know, talking about depression, I mean, I know people who have struggled with it. Uh, I think everyone has. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've had you know, small temporary bouts with myself where like I get, I ruminate on things that I can't stop ruminating about and I don't quite know how to escape the chamber. Um, and so I, you know, any, any bits and pieces of, of my angst that can go into him and sort of uh, illustrate his struggles while he's struck, you know, the internal struggles that he's dealing with while he also has to deal with getting out of this place that he's stuck in uh, is good, makes it better. I think too that once he realizes the one of the powers of, of the other world as a as a plot point is that um, as long as they're there, <laughs> you, you know you have some drive to to escape. Right. And I think that that's a you know that's an interesting aspect. I hadn't even thought about that till just a second. That that's a real uh, tension inducer for the for throughout the book. Yeah, to get to get out of way. You yeah, know? and then once you get away, it's oh god, what comes next? You know, <laughs> uh, dogs. <laughs> yeah, you do you have problems with dogs? I don't. I like dogs. I I will though. If I see like a Rottweiler or a pit bull, I'm a little, I'm a little. Uh, mm. You know, I've known people who've been bitten by them. You know, um, 
you know, I was drunk with a friend once and we were walking down some street and there was a dog on a chain and he taunted the dog, which was stupid. He was drunk, like 22. And the dog leapt up and went, and got like three feet away from my arm. And so mm. I turned to my friend, I was like, you idiot, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, in, in a, it's another way of unnerving people where you take something that they like and you use it against them instead. Mm. And that, that freaks people out. Uh, absolutely. One of my absolutely favorite movie moments of all time comes from the 1982 version of The Thing mm-hmm. by John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment when, when somebody's head is separates from their body. <laughs> is that, uh, you have an echo of that in this book. Was that um, based on your experience with the thing? Or did no, I actually, I don't remember it. I remember when it came out, but I was too young to see it because it was too scary. Like, oh. I was like six when it came out. Oh, okay. Um, oh, my God. No, but I, no, I didn't. I knew, I have like, I have, I have a bug thing that I don't, you know, I don't like <laughs> bugs and stuff like that. So uh-huh. there's some of that in there. Okay. Um, and really, you know, there was sort of like a brainstorm of monsters. Okay, well, this, you know, this monster could be this and this monster could be that. And it was very literal, like, mm-hmm. when I was doing it. Um, and some of it came from places of real fear, like, you know, I don't want to go down in my basement and see a gigantic bug. That would suck. You know? <laughs> Sometimes I'm afraid I will. Um, and then other times it's just, okay, you know, what if there's a monster made of smoke and glowing eyes and that's it, you know, and you can't, you can't cut through them, you know, or anything like that. You know, the gun's not, bigger gun's not going to help you yeah, with that guy. gun's not going to help. I totally loved uh, Fermona. Oh, thank you. And you did such a wonderful job with that character. Uh, talk about creating that character. And it seemed like you liked her quite a bit as a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was great. I just, like I said, it was, you know, it, like you, you had said before, like any sort of villain that's gregarious and fun. It has a bit of a winking spirit because you're already in this sort of dark world and, you know, and, and, people with, you know, monsters with ill intentions and stuff like that. But if they have a bit of charm to them that makes you sort of hate the fact that you like them, you know, despite all the horrible things that they want to do to you, then that's cool and that, that's fun. Plus the other thing was, you know, I had, you know, I was, I was still struggling with character development and getting better at it. Mm-hmm. And so if I was going to have a giant, like they had to have a gigantic personality. Like, again, the, the physical attributes of the character served their led directly to how they spoke and how they acted. Wow. Yeah, like larger than life. Uh-huh. You know? Absolutely. Um, I think every human being on the face of the planet has either used or experienced the phrase, the job from hell. Right. Uh, that we get the literal version of that here, yeah. which I was quite thankful to see. I, I don't think I've ever seen a job from Helen in another world journey before, but it makes sense. And I think, uh, she, you may have established a brand new trope in this genre. <laughs> yeah. I remember I, um, there was an old Paul Auster book called the music of chance that became a movie. And I had only seen the movie cause mm-hmm. I'm a terrible reader. And, um, but it was like James Spader and Mandy Patinkin, and they were like a couple of drifters, and they were, and they got trapped into having to build a wall for like a billionaire, you know? Mm-hmm. And the wall was obviously had some sort of metaphorical depth to it too, but there was also the physical labor of them having to build a wall, and you know, you'd watch them get all PO'd about having to build a wall. With the same sort of 
the same sort of uh, macabre fa- satisfaction you get from watching like Cool Hand Luke and like prison movies and stuff like that. <laughs> right. There's something about labor that's horrible, but as a reader, you're sort of you know you're reading it and you're like, oh, thank God, I don't have to do that. <laughs> you know, I had never thought about that. That uh, by putting your characters in situations that they don't, the reader doesn't have to be in, you get a, a jolt of pleasure out of the reader. Yeah, yeah. It's like you know, if you read about. You know, uh, the Great Escape or something like that. There's, you know, there's a, you feel you feel the character's misery and you join them in wanting to sort of break out so they can get they can flee and get away. The character also Ben finds himself in many situations. I think you do a good job with just uh, the surreal. I mean, the surreal is this whole entire book essentially is an exercise in the surreal. But I, you, there are some points. That are more specifically, I would call surreal, than than others. Right. And I, I'm wondering, were you schooled in the surrealists, or did you just nope. look at Dolly paintings and go, no. cool? <laughs> I mean, I do like Dolly paintings, but no, there was no, um, no, there was no, there was no deliberate uh, reason for it. I mean, obviously, you're you're in this sort of fantastical world, and so things have to be a bit off, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that means tweaking things, you know, so that you know instead of the you know, the ground being, you know, if there's sand, well, it's, instead of it being brown, it's red, you know. And mm-hmm. just little things like that that, again, that put you out of the familiar world and, and put you somewhere that's very difficult to to deal with from your, you know, your, your sort of uh, the, the norm, the, your regular routine and, and what you see, in, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know. Now, um too, I, I like that there are lots of, of parts where, you know, he's trying to figure out who, who's behind this. What, what, why is this happening? Right. And uh, there's a, a, a name mentioned, and I, I, won't, I don't want to give it away because I think the, it's sure. – I don't want to destroy the, the pleasure of the book. But um, as you were putting this book together, did you know about – you know, uh, the major machinations of the plot? Yeah, yeah. I knew the end scene I sort of knew mm-hmm. as I was going, and I had notes for it. Um, that I knew that I knew that character and stuff like that. And I think I think any good quest um, tale usually also not it's not only just a search to get home, but it's also a search for answers for why why this is, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's cool to have a character desperate to find answers because I think, I think people, I think life is about people finding answers. You know, why are we here? What's the meaning of all this stuff like that? People always want to know that stuff. And so to have someone just, you know, at, at, you know, at the end of this, again, I don't give too much away, but you know, to, to have someone who's has that sort of the satisfaction of giving answers is, is cool and fun and good. Doesn't oh, give you all of it, but some of it. It's fun to. It's also that's a fun experience to to read when you finally get to the yeah that part. You know, yeah, like, you oh, want it to wow. be sort of like a heat coffee shop scene, you know. And the the uh, Poirot sitting the suspects around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poirot in the in the drawing room. Uh, do you think that this will be made into a movie? Uh, do you think it could be made into a movie? Uh, yes and no. I mean, one of the reasons that, um, I remember George R. R. Martin wrote Game of Thrones specifically because he never thought it would be filmed. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he so he made it as crazy as possible. And then, of course, they went and filmed it anyway. So um, I think it always can be done. Mm-hmm. I am never optimistic about anything I do being turned into a TV or a movie mm-hmm. because just the odds are that it won't. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just impossible to get anything made. I mean, Postmortal has been optioned for five years, something like that. And it probably won't get made into anything. It's just the way, it's just the way it goes. You know, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not Star Wars. It's not, it's not a bankable property. Right. Um, unless it, I mean, unless it really blows up on the bestseller list, and by all means, everyone should go buy it and have it blow up. So that, that, that would give it more heft to, to be a movie. But I never count on it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm never arrogant enough to believe it. I do know that there is some mild interest, but nothing has happened just yet. Are you going to continue working in this, the, the genre? Uh, yeah, sure. Although it's, it's always going to be based on what the best idea is, mm-hmm. you know? What is the idea that's going to be most, uh, you know, have the most velocity and be great for readers and be a really fun time and good reading? Well, I think it's interesting that Postmortal was a, a pretty straightforward piece of extrapolation. Yes, it was sci-fi. Science, science fiction. It was a hypothetical. Pretty, yeah, yeah, it was a, a very straightforward what if and, yep. and shockingly possible, too, in yes. the way we're trying to develop our technology now. Yep. Um, and then this is pretty radically different. It is, but... Um, it shares the same prose sensibility. Yeah, and I also... I don't... I don't see much too much between sci-fi and fantasy because they, they're both sort of hypothetical, mm-hmm. you know? But instead of what if X scientific discovery, it's what if a dragon, mm-hmm. you know? And the main character in each of them is a relatively normal person trying to deal with the lunacy of their surroundings. Right. And often failing. And so in that sense, they, they are connected. But yeah, I, 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 could, I could see why, you know, they, they're different in terms of, in terms of genre classification. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully, like, in the, in the telling of them, they have some, some shared DNA. Mm-hmm. Well, too, they have a... <coughs> they offer a lot of attraction in that you said... Uh, as you just said, I'm going to try to remember this, that somebody ends up in a weird world and they try to figure out what's going on. That's right. I mean, uh, hey, that's the world we wake up to, to every damn day. Yeah, especially this year. <laughs> yeah, especially this year. Especially this year, man. I've been speaking with Drew McGarry. His new novel is The Hike. Thank you for joining me, Drew. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.